Welcome to the Grit and Grace space. Come along as we explore experiences, cultivate community, and grow our appetite for adventure. Here we go. Welcome to episode 14 of the Grit and Grace space. I am recording this intro here from my hotel room in Connecticut. As you'll hear on the podcast, I'm traveling this week and week over week has just been a little bit tougher to get these podcasts recorded and reflection for me is to I think build more structure and routine into my life something that's sort of been tough to get the hang of with the start of grad school and some intermittent work travel and figuring out my fitness routine with evening classes and so pardon the delayed release here but thanks for hanging in there 14 episodes in today alexander and i sit down to talk through well two things number one we go on a hefty discussion about whiskey alexander's favorite hobby right now and you will learn more than you ever wanted to forget about whiskey from Alexander if you sit down long enough. Then we dig into the next chapter for the Four Women Only book and decided to cut it up instead of talking about two different chapters considering the two different chapter fours were not very similar from a topic standpoint. And so we wrap up the last little bit of the pod talking about chapter four in the great and gray space again encourage you if you are single dating married any of the above to check out these books and just consider them when you're i don't know i think the books are really interesting and helpful when i guess overall working on your emotional intelligence and they can give you some insight into what the opposite sex might be thinking. So anyway, I will stop talking and we can get to the good stuff. back to the mic this afternoon, Mr. Rao, mm-hmm. who is so thrilled to be with us. Why don't you tell us how you're feeling? I'm feeling like I'm saving you because you keep planning poorly. I do keep planning poorly, but school is kicking my butt. You could just plan better. You want to have a podcast if you do the planning. This is what I cautioned of. Yeah, here you are supporting my hopes and dreams. Just this one time. That's it. No more after this? You have to put a guest in between these. Okay. You won't hear my voice next. You won't hear Alexander's voice next. However, next weekend we will be on vacation. So maybe I'll take my microphone and record for Rachel this week sometime. Okay. There's no way I'm going to have room in my uh, suitcase for that. You're going for like three days. How do you not have room? 
Went to Israel for a week and I had room. I'm going to Connecticut from Monday and coming home on Friday. So that's three whole days plus that's four whole days because I have to wear a work outfit on Friday. Okay, four days. That's a lot of clothes. At least it's not cold. Are you going to work on Friday? Yes, I just said that. At least I don't have to pack like a coat yet. Your bag is huge. I guess it's smaller than the one I use now, which is your old one, actually. I might need to pack my old one, use my old bag. It's not much bigger. <laughs> That's enough <laughs> bigger, you could probably fit the mic. Yeah. Yeah. You need to free- yeah, you don't want to check a bag, though. Hmm. Oh, well. How have you been doing? Tell me about the last week through the eyes of Alexander. It's fine. It's all personal stuff or work stuff? What do you want to hear about? Personal stuff? Yeah. It's been fine. It's just hard to get going after midterms. So I've been kind of, I was kind of slacking last week a little bit, but doing better now, getting back in the groove. What has been the most challenging part of grad school now that we're past midterms, we have a good understanding of the routine and the people that we have to work with and our assignments? I think it's a couple of things. I think that knowing still four semesters to go yeah. is a lot. Like, thinking that you're, you know, not that far along. That's tough. Ron John said we're 10% of the way through. I know. I said that, too. Yeah, but it sounds better when Ron John says it. It's too. So that's... Doesn't seem like much, but also does, I guess. But it's it's the continuous output. Like, I think for three weeks, you can suffer through most stuff, but you kind of lose steam. We're almost at Thanksgiving here you know about a month away you know we got some thanksgiving maybe coming up so have some work vacation we're thinking about christmas plans and it's just tough to kind of keep the momentum up i think especially after midterms i was like i had good momentum into midterms and then like really went pretty hard Mm -hmm. what do you want disco is coming over with her pre-bark bark face or she just stares at you and like kind of wiggles her nose back and forth and opens her mouth. I know. She wants something. A little bit. What do you want? Did you feed her dinner? Yeah, I fed her a big ass dinner. It's a big dinner. What, baby? She probably wants to go outside. She probably wants to go outside. Just go outside? We will be back after the short break. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. We left off with the toughest part being... It's the momentum through the semester. It's hard to, week after week, just keep grinding. It's a little bit tough. I think you could do it if you didn't have midterms. It is such like a... (laughs) It is such a short-term, like, push. And then you're kind of left, like, tired after that. And so you sort of, like, back off for a week. And then it's hard to... Get back on. It's hard to get going again. So, that's tough. So what has been the most, uh, I guess, like rewarding or satisfying part of grad school so far in contrast? I think just learning a lot. Yeah. Learning a lot, I think, especially in strategy where the stakes are high or high. Okay, we're back. We had a, a bit of an intermission with Disco going absolutely crazy and... Alexander was in the middle of something that he I pulled him away to start the podcast and I'm in kind of like a crummy mood. <laughs> so we took a little show must go on. 
We took a little intermission, and yes, the show must go on. This is much better than the Pity Party of a Solo podcast I was going to record by myself, so it's much better with you here. Thank you. What are you drinking this evening? Oh, I thought you'd ask. I wouldn't ask. You thought I wouldn't ask? Your chips are going to be crunching in the podcast. I know. I thought about that. Okay, so I think whenever I'm a guest, we should do a whole segment on like whiskey. Yes, I, I agree. That's why I asked you. So this is a Russell's Reserve single barrel pick that, that uh, Alabama did for the ABC stores from August, maybe? September? Whenever we're there with Rip. We both got a bottle of Blanton's and Russell's. Like, he, he and Rip bought them, but... Who and Rip? Ansley and Rip bought them. Because, oh. like, I'm not a resident, so you can't buy stuff on allocation day, and that was an allocated thing. So, can you back up a little bit and explain for the audience what this whole thing... So, for context, I understand this experience from Alexander waking yeah. up at, like, 5.45 on a Saturday, and he's like, okay, I'll be back. And I was like, whatever, I don't know. Yeah. So, some states, I guess Alabama, I don't know if other states do it, but I know Alabama does it because I've been and I've researched it. They do monthly allocation drops. So, on the, I don't know what it is, second Monday of every month, they release the list of what's going to be on the drop. And the third, the list I'm sorry, of whiskey. Saturday. Yeah, and then on the third Saturday of every month or whatever, the I don't know how it works, they, at like, at 9 o'clock, from 9 to 10, they open an hour early think and you stand in line to like get in and buy it but some usually people like some people will camp out or get there the night before really early oh we got gosh. there at like 5 a.m for a nine o'clock opening oh yeah because it was central time i guess yeah because it's central time so i like it because if you want a bottle bad enough like if you want a blanton's every month you could go get a blanton's you know you just got to be willing to like camp out Whereas, in Columbus, <laughs> if you wanted a Blanton's this month, let's just say, like, you couldn't really do it. There's nowhere you can just go and, like, spend 24 hours of your time and, like, obtain one. You'd have to get it on secondary or, like, know some, sort of somebody. So, I like that. I like that if you want it, you could put the... We know somebody who has a list of contacts, but we don't have the list of contacts. Well, like... Yeah, we don't... I mean, nothing is, like... What? Nothing is... There's not just piles of it laying around. Like, let's be honest. Someone has it from their collection from a while ago, and... Not a while ago, but... Anyway. The point is, we went over there. So we went, and we wanted... There's some other good stuff in the drop. There's supposed to be a Four Roses... Single barrel... Barrel proof thing. There was something... Elijah Craig, we didn't know if it was like a B523 or C9. We didn't know what it was or just a pick. And the maker's batch proof was what I wanted as well. But they only had six of them and we were number 11 in line. I can't remember. So we didn't get one of those, which is too bad. Um, but you got a Blanton's and a uh, Russell's single barrel pick, which is cool. So I have a Russell's 10 year, which is delicious i think it's as good as if not better than eagle rare which is like hard to get and russell's sitting on the shelf for 40 bucks all the time basically and then russell's single barrel not a pick just like a single barrel and it's good and this is like a pick 
It's really good. So I love the Russell stuff. Wild Turkey 101, Rare Breed. They're all from the same Wild Turkey distillery. So they're all similar profiles. I thought it was Buffalo Trace. Buffalo Trace is another big brand, but they oh. make other stuff. They've got a bunch of brands underneath. Okay. It's like Weller and Buffalo Trace and Stag and E.H. Taylor and Blends. It's all Buffalo Trace. And then Russell's is the same thing as Wild Turkey and what else? Yeah. It's... I think just those two wild turkey and russell's i think they might have other stuff i can't keep track there's so many brands and distilleries and sub brands it's like crazy there's people that don't even distill they just source like penelope and pinhook which we like so anyway that's what i'm having and tell me the notes of this whiskey i don't know the notes it's just really good Alexander got into whiskey maybe it's I feel like it's a little over a year ago at this point. Yeah. And the collection is growing and growing, although on school nights it's and even I guess during the week. Well, yeah, I've I've slowed down the buying because the shelf overfloweth. <laughs> a couple of factors I think happened all at the same time. So the shelf was filling up. And the more you get, the more, like, now I've got three bottles of this. And, like, you, you start to get multiples, not of the same exact thing necessarily, but you have enough variety that you kind of know what you like and you don't need to try it. You've tried a lot of things. So I think I started to hit a critical point where I, I tasted most things. Not most, but enough things. Like, a lot of stuff is MGP sourced. And so once you've, like, had MGP in a couple different varieties, you're like, okay, I kind of got it. So what is MGP for the audience? Midwest Grain Products, which is now called Rawson and Squibb, Rawson Squibb, something they renamed. But it's an Indiana distiller who then like barrels and sells it to other companies who then just age it. Or sometimes MGP does the aging for them sometimes. So like so if it's a all lot coming of stuff. From, if it's all coming from MGP, how does it taste different then? MGP will make different mash bills. So it'll taste different just because the mash bill is different. Even if you source the same mash bill, you might age it in your state, and so it'll, it'll taste different because the aging, oh. the barreling, like the way it's... So they're just doing step one of the process for everybody to take, and then they're just like supplying raw material, basically. Yeah. They will age, though, if you pay them. Like, you pay them rent on the barrels, basically, to age them in their warehouses. Yeah, but how is that going to taste different than anything else? It might not, unless you were like, I want this on rack eight or something, you know? I want this special mash bill on rack eight, and then you kind of get your own thing. But a lot of it does taste similar, to be honest. Like, most people that are really good can generally pick out an MGP, like, distillate. They can mm. tell. It has, like, kind of a profile. So, anyway, I've had, a, I've had a lot of stuff. And then also, I think with school starting, trying to save more money, which means not buying a lot of whiskey every month. And then also, with school happening, I'm not drinking as much. So, not that it's, like, I've, not, I've only finished, like, maybe three or four bottles total you know just like not that much yeah but you have like a billion bottles so each one of them's had uh, right a little bit yeah so you don't you know. finish bottles very quickly so you're not really replacing yeah. bottles it's infuriating and then the yeah. rack just grows and grows and grows and i've started to make you take overflow and put them in your office where your desk is so that yeah. they're not overflowing not messing up the aesthetic of our apartment so yeah we're drinking this it's delicious I want more of these. I would, anytime, like, if I saw one for under 70, 
like a buy. Oh my gosh. I think. So what's the typical price of mm. whiskey? Depends. What do you, what age, what proof, what <laughs> Okay. Well we'll put a pause there because I think we single might, barrel. We might be starting to lose some people. It varies. I I think it's interesting I think if you're looking for stuff that's maybe ninety proof, you're probably playing in the forty dollar range. Yeah. $45 range, depending. It can go up more, obviously. Like, plans is 65 But it's a single barrel, so you pay a premium for single barrel. You pay a premium for cast strength. Why do you pay a, pair, a premium for single barrel? They, they know they're going to sell them. Logistically, it's harder to do. Oh. You, like, drain the lines and stuff. So, and Blanton's just charges a premium anyway, so. But most times, single barrels you're paying a premium for, so... Probably most stuff I buy, I think, is somewhere between, like, probably 45 and 65 Yeah. That's a sweet spot. Like, if I'm looking for something that's... I want something barrel-proof, cast strength. I like an age statement. That you're kind of end up in the 65 to 85 range. What's probably. the age statement? They tell you how long it's been aged? Yeah, so... Depending on how they do it. And why? Just so that you know, so you can learn how to taste different ages of whiskey, or just no, like it, it demands a premium. Anything with an age statement because they're you know certifying it's that age. So think, I, about, what, think about two bottles. What do you mean on the, they're certifying? They're just putting it on the label. Yeah, I'm just saying like if they want so there's two bottles side by side, and they're the same price, mm-hmm. and one tells you how old it is, and the other one doesn't. Like the one that has the price kind of demands a premium because it's guaranteed to be that old versus. In the other barrel, they could have mixed some really young stuff in to bring the cost down so they can make more money, you know? So, age-stated stuff depends on premium. So, you'll see, like, Knob Creek carries typically a... They have a 9-year age-stated, 12, they have a 15 and an 18. Would you, if we take the Five Forces analysis of the whiskey market, Mm. is the whiskey market an attractive industry or an unattractive industry to enter? I think it's not a, to be a distillery. It's attractive right now. Oh wait, to not distill. Well, you would buy your. Oh yeah, yeah. To distill. Yeah. So yes, I I think it is. But the pot the I don't know what you were watching the other day was talking about how if you were to enter today, you wouldn't be selling product for like eight to ten years at the soonest, and the volume that may be ready in the next eight to ten years might be greater than the demand and so then the prices would go down right so this is the caveat is that i would say like maybe right now i feel like the market is pulling back a little bit because there's been so much new capacity brought online Mm-hmm. So the barrier to entry is pretty low. So, so like governmentally, you have to have a license to do it. But equipment-wise, it's really not that expensive. So the barrier to entry is rather low. You can also source from MGP for a few years right. until your stuff ages. So it's not like you're making zero dollars for four years. But if you want, you know, bottle and bond, or like if you want to say it's your distillate, you do need to wait probably four years. So and takes them to figure out like that's good. So you're talking about probably five to six years. Mm-hmm. Now. Most stuff though. Five to six years from when you have product. From when you from the time you distill it. Yeah. 
to the time it's ready. So I guess he could enter the market tomorrow and source from NGP, is mm-hmm. what you're saying? Yeah, or it's one from Kentucky or Tennessee. Yeah. There's other non-disabled producers in Bardstown. And just put your label on it? Mm-hmm. You tell them where it's from. You say it's like a Bardstown distillate, but we sourced it, and this, and then we're going to go make whiskey that's like of a similar taste profile. So it's doable. A lot of companies do that for a while just to make money. The other way they do is they sell vodka and gin, non-aged spirits for a while. Mm-hmm. to fund the whiskey stuff so i think the challenges with the industry are that a lot of new capacities come online so there could be a big a big bust coming mm-hmm. in approximately four to six years mm-hmm. maybe uh, yeah about that long the other thing to think about is brands like wild turkey and buffalo trace they're not going anywhere. Well, they're not going anywhere. That's what people want. People want stuff from them. They don't necessarily want other people's stuff. Yeah. But their product's pretty old. So the average for Wild Turkey 101, it's like a seven-year product or eight-year product. It's actually pretty old. Same with Buffalo Trace. It's like a six- to eight-year product. So actually... What's the, the average age of what you have on the shelf in there? It's all over the place. But all these new craft brands are competing in the three, four, five, six-year range. Mm-hmm. You know? So... They've got some time before their stuff really ages up to the age that Buffalo Trace and Wild Turkey are at because they've been doing it forever. But also, Wild Turkey and Buffalo Trace can do it for a cheaper price because they've probably paid off a lot of the equipment, things like that. So they've got a pretty good cost advantage. They're not competing on cost, but they have cost advantage. Mm-hmm. So Buffalo Trace is in a unique position because they have a, they're competing on differentiation. And Everybody the, would be. And they're like the low-cost supplier, too. Everybody would be competing on differentiation in a sense mm. more than they would compete on cost. I don't know. I mean, I like think, it has to be good to buy. I think a lot of people do compete on cost. Really? Yeah, Evan Williams, White Label. What's the cheapest thing that's eighty proof? Ugh, that and, sounds terrible though. I'm just saying. I mean, beer's the same way, but light, natural light. I'm talking about the for the market like you and the people that are interested in the things you're interested in yeah the competition is on differentiation not on cost yeah i agree but there's almost no competition to be honest everyone wants the same 10 bottles basically and then there's like thousands on the market but everyone wants the same 10 they want the things they can't get now are they that much better than everything else on the market no like i have some of them and they're not crazy Antique 107, Blanton's, Stag. So does that come down to brand and, like, building up a customer? Just hype. You could call it brand power or whatever, but it's really just hype. It's good. I mean, if Stag was on the shelf for 60 bucks, yes, I'd be buying it, you know, all the time. Because for cast strength, eight-year product, 65 bucks is a great deal. Cast strength it just means it's not watered down at all? Yeah. So it's like 132 proof, give or take. So what is what you're drinking right now? I think it's 110, 115-ish. But I think Elijah Craig is the best kept secret, personally. So Elijah Craig, this is my jam. I'll go off by Elijah Craig for a second, then I'll stop. Elijah Craig Barrel Proof comes out three times a year on only those batches, so they don't like ever re-release. So it comes out, there'll be like the A batch, the B batch, the C batch each year. And that's it. It's like a one-time shot. So you have some scarcity being created by the fact that it's a one-time go. It's a 12, was 12 year age dated, but they've come, they've dropped the 12 year and they tell you how old it is. So the B batch this year was 11 years, six months. The C batch is 13 years, 
six months. So how do they decide what to pull to, for that badge? They, I don't know. They just decide. They, I think they make, they have, they have decisions about profiles they want to kind of skew for each batch. But, it, and it's like $75. So to me, 12-year product, cast strength is a great deal. It's like, I should know this. People are going to be Ooh. sad. It's, I want to say it's Heaven Hill. But I don't, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, they make it, but Heaven Hill owns Elijah Craig. They own, like, maybe Knob Creek. I can't remember. You can't keep eating chips on the podcast. Sorry. So, I think that's the bomb. They're not all, like, people complain. They're like, oh, it's not as good as it used to be. But I'm like, show me another 12-year age-dated product that's basically on the shelf that's cast strength. I mean, there's nothing to compare it against. There literally isn't anything. Yeah. Nothing exists. So how did the whiskey hype, whatever, it seems like it's taken off in maybe the last three years? Yeah, I think since like 2019, 18 is when it started to kind of get some momentum. I don't know, to be honest. I know that a lot of the Pappy Van Winkle demand started to drive all this. I don't know what started that, though be honest so buffalo trace makes some older products 10 12 like some 12 12 year plus 14 16 year products and they got to be really popular and so what happened was basically people started looking for substitutes is the right word technically kind of in this case it depends how you think about it but maybe substitutes to that and they started moving down the chain and they got to stag and weller and things like that that they could get their hands on and then that kept driving all the way down to the regular buffalo trace products that were 28 dollars equal rare for 40 dollars it basically just wiped out all the inventory and the whole product line that buffalo trace has everyone just was buying all of it basically so the pappy opened the doors to the regular regular folks i guess like realizing mm-hmm. how good of a value Buffalo Trace was that maybe like they gained new customers that they didn't have before do not eat that chip oh my gosh I, I'm not able to edit out the crunches from right. Alexander's crunches I'll stop so. eating them so I think I think really Pappy's pretty expensive and it was even not I mean people say it was like on the shelf collecting dust in the in the teens 2000 Teens, but I think people also couldn't afford it. I mean, some of those bottles of Pappy on the shelf are 120, 140, 160, which is still a lot. Most people don't pay that mm-hmm. for whiskey. Like, most people don't want to pay more than $35, $40 for whiskey. I was in that camp too. So people would call these other products like Poor Man's Pappy, for example, and they say, okay, well, Antique 107, Weller, 10, Weller 12 year is 40 bucks. And it's, it's you know, 80% as good. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, it's a good deal. 80% is good. One third the price, one fourth the price. And I think they were buying those things instead. And there was just this big boom. And I think the demand fueled it. And then during COVID, it really was a lot. That's when it really kind of got pretty crazy. The secondary prices went through the roof. People were. But is that just because people had like more time on their hands to figure it out? Like people were. I think it was time and money. I think they were probably watching YouTube reviews and stuff. But I think they had some little stimulus 
action going on. And little stimmy money. Like it burn it on a bottle. But it, it got just like totally crazy. I think the economy was pumping then too. Yeah, I think like before oh, yeah. rates started rising in 21 or whenever that was. Early 22, early 22. And people made a ton of money. Like just in, in the market and stuff. Economy was booming. Yeah. So... Why were rates so low? How did rates get so low? To, because they were low beginning of 2020, like January time frame 2020. They're at like they 2.5. Yeah, they were low before that even. 2.25 at You'd one point. You'd have to go back. There's. But like, how did they get so low to begin with? I mean, the Fed had them low going into 19. Like in 18, they had them low. But why? I don't know why it, Why they had them. It was some policy. Olin talks about it a little bit. About mm. the ZERP. Zero interest, something. So, but they were go- low going in, and they cut them to like zero during COVID, basically. And then market went to the moon, inflation went to the moon, and they jacked them up. To- we should have just gotten a loan, like a zero percent loan. It still would have been like two and a half. Still, we should have just. Gotten I don't think like- anyone would have given you just a straight up loan. Like, there's no collateral. Why they give people money for school? There's no collateral. What what collateral is there? there, I just think it'd be tough. I I hear what you're saying, but I mean, maybe that's the move. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. So cut back on the buying of the whiskey and the drinking of the whiskey. But I still keep an eye out for like special things here and there. What did you bring home today? A Chattanooga single barrel. So I love Chattanooga's Cast strength, 111 proof. How did you learn about Chattanooga? Oh, good question. I had had it at Mathis's house once, but I didn't really remember it. And then I bought, I think I just bought their cast strength because like the price was good. I was like, this is 40 bucks and it's cast strength. I was like, I wonder if it's any good, I think. And I bought it and it was really good. <laughs> That's really rich. They use a high malt mash bill. Most people don't use that. So it's like less spicy, more creamy and chocolatey, I think. So it's really good. And then Rip had the bonded from either bought or when he was up there. And it won our 100 proof bonded blind. 16 bottles, 100 proof. Oh, yeah. You should explain that whole situation. This was madness. Anyway. Madness. So it won. And I was like, dang, this is crazy. I mean, it beat E.H. Taylor, like, destroyed it like he showed didn't even finish well and it it like far and away was the best and i think it's just that high malt really stands out in a blind and comes across really good and then he went up there he went through there when he's at the distillery at one point and i wanted to get something single barrel from them just to like compare against other things that's always interesting to me to try against like this single barrel is like about a four year it's like four and two months four years two months so you can compare that against the bo- the bottle and bond, and the flavors are very different. And it's interesting to see the variety. What does bottle and bond mean again? Means it was aged for at least four years in a government bonded warehouse at 100 proof, with only like water What's added. What's a government bonded warehouse? Know, it's probably something where they pay them more taxes. What or else would they add if it wasn't water? There used to be like really bad additives, that, like going back 100 years or whatever. Yeah. So like bottle and bond act, maybe not 100 years, because that would like prohibition but after that i guess people would add other stuff to it and so e.h taylor came up with the whole like bottle and bond thing like that was his thing are all e.h taylor's bottle and bond no is the one that we have bottle and bond mm-hmm. 
So the ones that are not bottled and bond are like the cast strength varieties because it can't be cast strength and bottled and bond. Because you have you don't the add any water. High. Yeah, because it's not 100 proof. You don't add anything to it. Right. I guess theoretically it's possible to somehow get the barrel in a condition to where the proof is exactly 100 and you didn't add any water, but unlikely. So, you no, know, they make... um. Their standard thing is like their bottle and bond, and then they make a single barrel that I think is also bottle and bond, and they make a rye that's bottle and bond probably. But they make a cast drink version of both of those, and they make other random cast drinks releases too. So you should explain this whole blind okay. situation. So, of course, when you amass like a, a decent amount of bottles, 50, 60, and then your friend has like 50 as well. And you have a little bit of overlap, but not like a ton of overlap. You got to figure out what's best, right? Value wise and and all that good stuff. So what we would do is we broke these into brackets. We would do 99 proof and under, I think. And we did like an exactly 100 proof. And then I think maybe we did something that was like 101 and over maybe or whatever we broke it up into segments to 110 and then we did 110 to infinite or 111 to infinite and so we would what we do like for the bottom bottom one's the best example if it was it it didn't have to be bonded but it had to be 100 proof maybe we let wild turkey in because 101 maybe we like let it slide in i can't remember but and we we pick 16 bottles basically and we do a blind but but with three at a time basically so Shinzi or Ansley would pour it and they each give us the same three and we would taste them and we'd pick our favorites. We'd rank them one, two, and three. And then we would do this. Maybe it wasn't 16 because that's not divisible by three. It must have been 12. It's probably 12. Did 12 and then you did four rounds of that. So you did four rounds and then they would take the winners of those rounds plus maybe a couple of like second place ones to make the numbers neat again, I guess. And so we probably had, we probably did six in the next round, I would assume, because you had four winners and we had two others. So mm-hmm. we did six and then same thing again, you'd have, you'd have two winners from that and, you, and then you take like one more second place honorable mention and then one more. So you'd do like this three tier blind and Chattanooga won it all. So did he end up putting this in a spreadsheet? Like, how did you guys... Oh, yes, it's in the spreadsheet. The problem is that... Here's the thing. Okay, so we got in a spreadsheet, and that's cool. But what you really want to do is start to correlate across other types of blinds. Like, now you want to blind that against other things to see. And do more blinds and see if, like, the data correlates. Like, to see if there's consistency. But we couldn't get to the bottom of, like, a scoring system because if something beats 16 bottles it should get almost like more points in a way than if something just beats like a nine bottle or a six bottle blind because you've got like more things you're like comparing against. So I figured out a way to do it that made sense, but like never really implemented it because like... I bet if you made a template and scoring system in Canva for how you guys did it, mm-hmm. you, we could sell it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just complicated because you have to basically... You have to have a large collection to do it, but I think... Yeah. People is like having that template already set up. I think people would buy it. Like they might four dollars of that'll be point. my next adventure. When when the first semester is over, 
Make I've, a blind template? Yeah, make a blind template on Canva, make it pretty, and sell it. And it'll be Alexander and Michael Ripley's proprietary scoring system. Well, it's not that complicated. Don't tell the audience what it is. I need to make money somehow. Yeah. So basically you want to be No, able, no, no, no. I'm not going to no. explain the math behind it, but the point is you have to you want to be able to do 10 different blinds and and still like figure out. They'll see. What they'll the best they'll see is. what the template is. So we love the blinds. I need to do another blind soon cuz it it's, takes the hype out of it. Which some YouTube channels do blinds like this and I like it a lot. It's it's good cuz some stuff is overhyped. What's an example of something that's overhyped? Last question, and then we'll move on to something else. Blanton's is overhyped. Ooh, hot take. Blanton's is overhyped. Say more. I mean, it's $65 and 93 proof. It's just not that good. It's too expensive for what you get. For the alcohol content or the flavor? The flavor. It's just kind of like... Are the different letters different flavors? No. Letters are random. Oh. Do you have all... Well, they're not random. They spell Blanton's. But there's not correlated to flavor profile or rick location or anything like that. No. Do you have how many? Mm, you- I have a few, <laughs> but I'm not trying to get them all. Some people are like into that. I'm like, eh, I'm not going to drink that much plantains. It's like a lot of letters for not that good of whiskey. I feel like it's a flex to have it, but it's also like you wasted your money. That's what I feel like. I'd be like, bro, buy one bottle of Stag but as it's opposed like to three bottles of Blanton's. Doesn't even make sense. It's like different tiers where somebody might look at the collection and be like, oh, wow, you have all the all the letters. Like, that's really impressive. And then another group of people might be like, you're dumb and you wasted your money and you don't know anything about whiskey. Some people like it. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying for me... I like stuff that's higher proof. I think that I would trade two bottles of Blanton's for one bottle of Stag. Yeah. And the market would kind of agree, actually, because secondary on Blanton's is like 100 bucks. Secondary on Stag is like 250 So I think it's worth I'd rather have that all day. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have Elijah Craig barrel proof than Blanton's. Yeah. I think I can't remember if, yeah. I've asked you about your perfect day before, but if the company we work at and, like, the industry we work in and, like, the whole concept of mechanical engineering just evaporated tomorrow, mm-hmm. what would you do? I don't know what I would do. I think I would partner with liquor stores to, like, run them more efficiently. Just liquor stores? Mm-hmm. So what inefficiencies do you see? I think... How does somebody decide to start a liquor store? I don't know. But I want to interview someone about it. I want to say that I sort of lie and tell them I have to do an interview of a small business for my MBA. And then get, like, let, let them let me interview them. Because they won't just, like, randomly let me do it. Anyway. You should do a bottle shop. Mm. You want to do a smaller one? Yeah, I'm going to do Queen's store. Oh, Queenie. But. <laughs> it would be a little challenging to understand. The decoder ring. <laughs> <laughs> Could you record it? I don't know. I haven't like asked or anything. But here's the thing. I think that there's two areas. I mean, I think they're smart people. Don't get me wrong. I think I do have this problem where I like assume I'm smarter than some people. Even though I'm obviously not. We know that. There's data that shows Because I got this. a better score on the accounting <laughs> desk than you did. True. True. We know. <laughs> But you'd probably ask me a question about it. You'd defer to me, which is silly. But What? 
I don't know. If you had a question about accounting, like you'd come and ask me probably. I would come and ask you. Okay. So. Uh, well, oh yeah, we didn't update the audience that we got our accounting test back, but we submitted our strategy papers. And after we submitted our strategy papers, we talked about how each one of us wrote the paper. And so we both wrote, we both it was like. Similar. Mm. It was similar in that we took the information, we dissected it, and made a recommendation for what the business should do next. And our recommendation was fairly similar based on the analysis that we had done independently. It What will be interesting, though, is I wrote my paper as if it was, like, a letter to the person making the decision. And yours was... Mine was maybe, like, a little bit more artistic. And yours was far more direct, third person. This is what should happen. This is why it should happen. This is why this other thing should not happen. Yeah. And... I'm very curious to see how, because you and I both have scored in the top 25% so far for participation in class, which is one third of our grades. So you read the cases and you have your bullet points and you're able to articulately, is that word? Yeah. Articulate participate in class in a in a manner that drives the conversation forward that's like the criteria so you can't just say yeah that's really interesting like you that's not good participation points so we both scored high enough to be in the top 25 percent which means the things that have come out of our mouths are decent enough to add value so to be really curious how our papers score yeah anyway I think, I think she could do a better job of, like, marketing. Okay. And I think also I would use more, like, statistical stuff. Not statistical, but, like, there's bottles that just sit on her shelf. And I'd be, like, clearing those out and bringing in new stuff. Would you clear them out with deals or what? Yeah. I don't know. I would do something. But she's got, like, money tied up in bottles that are that are from 2018. Literally bottled in 2018 and sitting on the shelf. What like, is the typical shelf life? Ideally, I mean, what are your how many inventory turns do you want? Oh yeah. Like think about it. What's one inventory turn every five years? Not good. <laughs> not good. It's a huge problem. So it's not like that one bottle is killing her, but she's got scotch sitting on the thing. She's got pinhook rye sitting there. I'd be like, I'd be blowing this out for sure. Or if a customer comes in and buys one, I'd be like, I'll give you the second one half off. Like I'd be wheeling and dealing trying to get rid of those bottles. And then I would try to understand what's selling well in the rest of the market, like get on other sites or like figure out what's like demanding a premium or what has volume behind it like ask your distributor but i want like maximum variety the shelves could all, all she needs like a, another layer of shelves there's like two layers she needs like a third layer so she needs more variety of that ain't nobody buying wine blow that out of there like she needs to do some optimization i think and then i would compete on price as well like what three dollars lower than mm, i don't like, know 10 lower i like... would just for i would be without a doubt the low low cost in town so low price versus low cost i would be i think you could be the low cost because her place can't be that much money and i think you could also be like low price i think you could be pretty competitive and maybe if there's a couple bottles you're not like as competitive but i think for the most part I think you want people to shop around and be like, it is the cheapest here. Because people do shop around. 
So I don't know. That's maybe what I would do. But I would do deals. I would also... So this sounds more like you'd be interested in buying a shop and running it versus like being a consultant for shops. Well, there's some problems with like buying a shop and running it. It's too expensive. Like all that inventory, all that risk. You're just risk averse. Yeah, but hold on. The problem is that I would just be like, I want either a fixed rate or 5% of your extra profit or like I want some kind of a deal, right? I don't want to carry all the inventory. I don't want to carry all that. And then there's other shops that could benefit too. Like she should do store picks. She should do tastings. She should do all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of things she should do. Like I was at that shop today and they're like, I was like, oh, this is, this is, uh, I was looking at a bottle. He's like, oh, that's our pick. He's like, go and try it. I'm like, yeah, I want to try it. You know, like you should have like samples open for all of your picks, like every single one, you know? So I think these things you got to do and I think you want to advertise it. And I think you drive a lot of foot traffic because of that. And I think it'd be huge. So I just think they could do a lot better. I think that they're not, not every shop owner is a consumer. Most probably are not consumers of specifically that. I think bottle shop does a good job with some of that, but I think they could actually go overboard they do picks of things people don't even want, and then they can't get enough of things people do want. So it's like, got to know your market a little bit. Yeah. Getting hot. But I think she could do a better job of some of those things. But overall, she has fair prices, and she has a good connection with some of her customers. That's another thing I would do, too, like try to get to know customers and stuff. Because it works both ways. They want to get to know you so that you maybe hold a rare bottle for them, and you want them to keep coming back in your shop. <laughs> so it's like... Works both ways. So I think she could just do more. I think marketing first, inventory management second. If no one's buying scotch, don't carry it. Like, it's not worth it. There's $100 bottles of scotch just sitting on the shelf. Anyway, I go on and on. But that's what I would do. So can we round out the podcast with maybe 15 minutes on the next chapter of our book? <sighs> Sure. Mm. Nicole? Yeah. So we'll lure you in with the whiskey talk and then pivot over to relationship discussions. Are we in chapter four? Yeah. What's yours about? When checking out is actually checking in. I feel like these are so different. We should only do one at a time. Okay. Well, you can't... should both talk about it. Okay. Let's do yours. Okay. So mine is about men address issues first by pulling away to process and thinks so they can better talk about them later. We talked about this a little bit in the last yeah episode. What are you doing? There's water. There's water right here. Okay. Can we wrap this up, please? Okay. So. To recap, we are going to... The chapters are so different that Alexander's chapter four in Four Men Only is so different from my chapter four in Four Women Only that we're just going to talk about my chapter four this time. And then maybe next time we'll talk about... The next time we meet to talk about the books, not the next podcast, we'll talk about his chapter four. So, again, my chapter... Four is titled The Thinker, 
when checking out is really checking in. Men address issues first by pulling away to process and think so they can better talk about them later. Processing difference. Men often have to think about something. Men often have to think something through before they can talk it through. And you highlighted, I don't know what I'm thinking or feeling yet, but I will once I process it for a while. So what's your immediate reaction to that? Mm, I think I've gotten better at this or gotten faster at processing. But yeah, I think when it's a complicated emotional situation, potentially I just need time to process. Are there examples in the book? Like a question with a poll or something? Yeah, so the poll question is, think about several instances when you've had a tiff with your wife or significant other and she has wanted to talk about it. In a a situation where you don't want to talk about it, please check all of the reasons why. And there are different reasons why. 48%, so all of these percentages are add up to more than 100 because somebody might check more than one. So we'll start with the greatest percentage. 71% respond, situation where you don't want to talk about it, check the reason why. Because I don't want to say something that in the heat of the moment I'll regret later. And the second highest percentage being 58%, sorry, 57% says, because talking about our argument right then won't lead to a solution. I think we had something I think it was like travel related. It might have been the whole Arizona trip thing. And I was just like, I just need time to like think about this. You know? There's no obvious solution right in front of me. But with like the emotions going on, I just need time to like process. And I was like, oh, what about this? Or like, oh, same thing happened when we wanted to go on a trip. We were saving for school, and we came up with like a compromise. And I just like couldn't, you know, couldn't need time to process what the compromise might be. And we agreed that we would go on said trip, but we would after that divert all travel money to MBA until we were done or something. Like we made some deal. Remember this? I haven't been diverting my travel money to MBA, so... Oh, I can change that line up for you. <laughs> I'm still saving for... Tra- Although I had had to use some travel money for fun money lately. But Amazon checkout has gotten my goose. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> the next highest one is... 48% say... In a situation where you don't want to talk about it... A reason why might be because I'm not clear what I'm thinking and or can't articulate it yet. I'm trying to sort out my feelings. See, I don't think I feel this way at work, though. I think that at work, sometimes I'm like, I need time to like go back and like think about this problem. But usually that's not the case. Usually I'm like, we need to keep talking about this to solve this problem. But they're not emotional problems. They're technical problems mm-hmm. more more technical we'll say not always technical but you know and i lean in more there I'm like we're not leaving till we figure this out so why why is it comfortable for you to be able to lean in 
to solving a technical problem, but not necessarily an emotional problem. I don't know. The emotion stuff is just hard. It just doesn't process fast. You're like melting to the couch as you say this. It's just there's no way to like break it down. I don't know. You know? There's no strategy. What's your strategy for solving an emotional problem? What's the game plan? What's the playbook look like? I don't know, right? So that's why it's tough. With technical problems, you can be like, well, that's not reasonable because of XYZ. Or if we do that, then this will happen. Emotional problems are just like, like, so why does this make you sad? Like, it's just tough. I don't know. It's harder to solve or just understand. It's not as intuitive. Yeah, I think so. For me, at least. So the next one, the next highest answer is because I need time to figure out a solution before I can burden her with it. And then the last one is because I'm mad at her and therefore don't want to talk to her. Do you ever feel mad at me and you don't want to talk to me? Mm, Not often. Every once in a while I feel mad at you and don't want to talk to you. Really? Yeah. When? When was the last time you felt mad and you didn't want to talk to me? I mean, for what period of time? More than a day. For more... No, not more than a day. For more than an afternoon. I don't know. Probably not for a while. <laughs> but there's, there's like 10 minute spurts where I'm like... <laughs> like the verses. Oh. Can you... Can you... Can you draw an example? <laughs> <laughs> when you said you're ready to record the pod. And so I got up from planning our trip that's saturday morning <laughs> what a week from less than a week from now six days came in here sat down on the couch and you go great let me make a smoothie really quick <laughs> i was like oh anger <laughs> so much anger that's low stakes though what that's low stakes it doesn't matter it's just it's from today it's an example <laughs> no, there's times when i'm like annoyed like I have to take care of disco a lot sometimes, and if you're not pulling your weight, I get angry. But no, usually it's fine. A lot of times you get grumpy. Nah, like, I'll make you grumpy, and then you're grumpy, and then I'm like, fine, we don't talk. Be in silence. So, what turns it around? What do you just have, like, need time to forget about how you're feeling, or like. Yeah, I think so, for sure. So same thing, writing, writing like a spicy work email. Like imagine you, you get off a meeting and you immediately draft a, an email. Then you come back and look at it the next day. You're like the person that wrote this is insane. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's you. It's like, I'm like, wow, who thought they could send this? This is crazy. So I think it's the same thing, just personal life. You know? Instead of uh, drafting spicy emails, I just go off and talk crap about whatever it is to somebody on Teams. Good plan. Write it down. Keep it, get it in writing. Yeah. It's okay. They purged us after 60 days now, so we should be fine. Yeah, right. Oh, fair, fair. Finish your chips. <laughs> oh, my God. They're so good. <laughs> so we need two mics. I'll be eating my chips if we had two mics. Oh, my gosh. You must just eat on a podcast. It's rude. I'm hungry though. <laughs> and I'm here against my will. <laughs> we just got to talk about whiskey for 45 minutes. Yeah, I'd rather. Yeah. It was good. It was a good chat. But I miss drinking it. I miss blinds. 
Suppose you're doing some minor project and it's not something you discussed with your wife or significant other. She gets that what were you thinking look on her face and clearly has a question about what you're doing. Choose the situation that happens most frequently. 47% of men answer, I didn't think about it and I decided that this was the appropriate action. So this is something that we actually struggled with a lot. What? We used to, where you would go hang out with the guys or going to go do something after work or... Mm-hmm. It was mostly that. It was mostly hanging out with the guys. And then did something wrong? No, you would... It, it came across to me as though you didn't care about my thoughts or feelings or maybe anything that I had planned. And you were just like... I'm going to go do this thing. No, like, you didn't have any plans for us, let's be honest. I know, but you didn't know that. <laughs> I knew. I knew. <laughs> <laughs> but you went and did a thing, and I was like, you told me you were going to go do this. You didn't like ask if I was cool. You, this. you said you'd be home by 9. It's 9.15. <laughs> no. Where the hell are you? It was like 10.30. I would get so angry with you. Every time. Every time. You would go ahead. <laughs> I don't know why this is funny right now, but it wasn't at the time. You'd go hang out with somebody and you'd say, I'll be home by nine. Because <laughs> that's what Tyler thought you wanted to hear. And, and then home. you'd go home at 1030 and I would be fuming. I would be in my bed, like tossing and turning, just getting more angry by the minute. <laughs> and you'd come home and I would be so mad at you. Mm-hmm. Every time. <laughs> Miss that. <laughs> I want to go back. You want to go back to making me angry? Why don't you just not care? I care less now. Huh? We'll see. You haven't done it in a while. Golf tournament two Fridays from now. Yeah, that's something I can like mentally prepare for and emotionally prepare for. I commit to nothing. You'll know when I'm home. See, I don't like that. <laughs> I like the frequent check-ins. Sometimes when you don't check in, I'm like, hello, do I still exist? <laughs> I'm like, it's been an hour. <laughs> like, lay off. <laughs> you always perceive it to be a shorter window of time than it actually is. I'm annoyed. I'm like, hang out, people. We're having a good time. And you're like, text me. <laughs> like, leave me alone. <laughs> don't talk to me. Oh, it's so aggravating. <laughs> oh, 36% of men said... I did think about it, and I even considered her potential objection, but I decided my action was the best. <laughs> I don't know. Almost done this last three. We're finally done with the chips. Yeah, they're gone. Almost done with the whiskey. That means the podcast is ending soon. Oh, so good. So this is also interesting. More than eight out of ten men on the second national survey... I agree that in such an occasion, they likely had thought about things ahead of time with more than a third saying they even considered their wives potential objections. So that's the one that I just read. Are there ever situations where you know that I'm going to be unhappy with whatever a decision is, but you make that decision anyway? Yeah, because I think you shouldn't be unhappy. So I'm going to stay on my ground. Not as much anymore, but yeah, sometimes it's like, maybe here's the greater question. Maybe I'm unhappy that you're so controlling. Am I so But you're not changing your behavior. Am I so controlling? I'm being asked to modify my behavior 
to like suit what you want. Your expectations, huh? <laughs> but shouldn't like, you know, why shouldn't you modify your behavior to suit my expectations? Hmm? <laughs> so roughly fifty percent of the time I just do whatever I want. Because <laughs> not 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 that much, but think about it. My the root cause of the way that I feel when I in all of these different circumstances, the root cause is I feel like you don't consider me or my emotions or my thoughts on the matter. And as a result, I feel like we are not a unit. And that makes me sad. I agree, but like. And I have abandonment issues, and that just gets exasperated. Maybe if you want to be a unit, you can come over to my side of thinking. And we can be a unit over here. But instead, you want to be a unit over there at, you know, 9 o'clock on a Saturday night or whatever your demands are. I don't have demands. <laughs> what would you call them? <laughs> what would you call them? Hmm? All the way. You thought of. No. You'll you... punish me if I don't comply. <laughs> I will not. Yes, you will. You'll be mean to me. No. Mm-hmm. This hasn't happened in a long time. If it did happen, <laughs> what would you do? I don't know. Okay. When I get home from work, if my wife tries to talk about the kids or her budget problems at oh. work, it's like she's trying to pour more into an already full bucket. Whatever she's pouring just spills over, and I'm not actually taking in what she's saying. But a few years ago, we realized that if she can just give me 30 minutes, that's enough time for me to let go of some of what is already in the bucket and create enough space for whatever she's wanting to talk about. Yeah, I highlighted that one, I think, right? Yeah, you highlighted that. Yeah, I think so. It's good because you usually work a little bit later than me, so I get some free time, but it's always enough time to fully decompress. Well, I think that's something that we've sort of learned out is that you come home and you spend whatever time on YouTube or Instagram or whatever just decompressing, and then around that time, mm-hmm. it's it sort of just worked out. Yeah. Now, whether it's intentional or like... It was the toughest when I used to get home and Disco would like, I would try to turn the table and she would just bark at me the whole time. She missed you. No, she, like, wanted to eat or play or something. But she probably didn't miss me. But the point was it was miserable for, like, weeks. Well, she's a little puppy. It's so annoying. Now she's great with that. She's really good. It's, like, it's, I think you cannot imagine. Like, every day, you come home from work, and you log off. The second you log off, just a barks in your face for 30 minutes. <laughs> It's miserable. <laughs> I've got a giggle for some reason. Oh, okay, this this is the last piece that is interesting, and then we'll wrap it up. Last piece you highlighted, but I'm going to read a little bit more. When I'm flustered and I can't, can't talk as well as you can during a conflict, I think I'm not as smart as you are. I can't win in communication with you, and if I can't win, it makes me want to shut down and not even try. So it makes a huge difference for a guy to know 
I'm smart. I can solve things. I'm just doing it differently than she does. And that will make a guy feel more willing to engage because he doesn't feel like a failure. If he knows this is how he's wired, he won't feel stupid anymore. Do you ever feel stupid, though, whenever I, like, out-talk you? No, I don't feel stupid. I just feel like I'm being beat down. Like you're beating me up, you know? But you don't usually do that, you know? Like, we don't get, like, fast-paced emotional conversations. Anymore. I'd say, like, high-stakes emotional conversations. Maybe some small ones. Like, I don't want to do that. I do want to do that. That's fine. But, like, bigger stuff, when there's, like, a lot on the line or more on the line, I think we take it slower and we take more breaks, and it's better. And I think I usually come back with, like, there's been, I think, lots of times when we couldn't reach a compromise about something that had a lot of emotional inputs. And we just took time. And like even just an hour or two later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I feel I feel like I can talk about this again or talk about it better or whatever. I don't really know. I'm not actively thinking about it or anything. It just takes time to process, you know. So what are let's end on a positive note. What are what is one thing that you're proud of and enjoy about our relationship <laughs> now? Don't worry, I'll cut out the pause and everybody thinks you gave an immediate answer. <laughs> Thank you. I thought you would. I think, I think we might not quickly reach a consensus about a topic that we disagree on, but we always reach like a consensus, like a compromise. Like we get, we give things up, we come at it from a different angle, we talk about how we're feeling, like we always get there. I think there's nothing that's like, oh, I hope this doesn't come back up. There's no, you know what I mean? I think that's really good. Like, it's settled. Like, everything gets settled. There's no, like, festering wounds that, like, a yeah. week later is going to come back up because yeah. something's not resolved. Like, we tend to resolve everything. Yes. It, now, like, it may take a week to resolve it, so during that time it's, like, sensitive. But I think eventually it's resolved and we're both, like, happy. Yeah. Like, we both feel like we are at a good spot. I think that's really good. I think. I think you're not as, like, likely to... Made me sit at the table and discuss anything. Like you might have like used that tactic years ago, potentially. But like we're gonna talk about this right now or whatever. I don't really know that you did that specifically, but I think there was more. There used to be years and years and years ago. Like it was like more focused. It was like right now we're gonna ha- we're gonna get to the bottom of this. Like that didn't really work. So I think taking more time and then coming back to it's good. Yeah, I think overall, I would say even in the last like year and a half that's something that's probably changed the most with I guess just like partially my ability to have I don't know I still have like fairly high highs and low lows we talked about that a little bit the last time compared to you but I think generally the last 18 months compared to the last like seven years or eight years my high highs and my peaks and valleys have gotten closer together closer together and that's helped when you and I have conflict it and I think just as more time passes I'm more secure in our relationship in general like you're not going anywhere there's nothing you know I could do or would do that could like make something unrecoverable and so I think I just feel more 
I guess, like, at peace with where we are and where we're going. And so I'm, like, less likely to... Whenever we do come across something that is, like, high stakes, they're generally lower than they would be, would have been in the past because there's, like, less emotion tied to them in a way. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. The stakes are lower. Or something, I don't know. We don't really get that many emotional... We've also started to have more conversations about, you know, what do we want the next year, three or five year to look like together. And I think the more that we have those future state planning conversations, the more proactive we can be about being on the same page. Mm. I think that makes a huge difference, to be honest. I think just like not trying to settle everything right then. There's so many conversations we've just been like, I hear you. I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> but then it comes back up days later. Yeah. We keep chipping away at it. And like, you can't sit down and eat the whole thing. I think those conversations just take time and keep bringing it up, and you'll eventually get there. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for sitting down. Yeah. Good talk. That's the pod. Thank you.